When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. And by the Netflix original documentary series, Chef's Table. Go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. Chef's Table is directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. All episodes now streaming on Netflix. And by NatureBox, shipping tasty and guilt-free snacks right to your door. With over 100 flavors to choose from, like Asiago and cheddar cheese chips, pistachio power clusters, and Big Island pineapple, you'll never get bored of snacking again. Try NatureBox for free by going to naturebox.com culture. That's naturebox.com culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Steve has a hangover in Toronto edition. It's Wednesday, May 13th, 2015. On today's show, Ex Machina is the British import from the screenwriter of 28 Days Later and Sunshine. It's both a thriller and a meditation on artificial intelligence. And then after 33 years, David Letterman is giving up the late show ghost. We discuss his legacy with Slate's own Jessica Winter. And finally, from a Fallon sketch to its own hit TV show, we discuss why Julia Turner wanted to discuss lip sync battle. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Fair enough. Uh, joining me today is uh, Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, hi Steve. How are you? Uh, we'll get to that. And <laughs> the also, title uh, took care of that question. <laughs> and also, Tell us about your mood, your hydration I, levels, your electrolytes. <laughs> Can you please hit the pause button for one second? And Dana Stevens is the film critic of SlateMagazine.com, Slate.com. Uh, hey, Dana. Hey. All right, I have a question for you. And if you think about it for two seconds... It actually won't stump you. What is the best reason to show up at a studio at uh, CBC in Toronto to record your podcast, Badly Hungover? Uh, best reason, best excuse. Does it have to be a Toronto-specific excuse or just... I think I'm hinting you pretty strongly in that Because direction. Carl Wilson is going to be there. No, because Carl Wilson and I went out last night and... Tied a couple on? Tied it on, yo. I mean, it was... We were out till, I mean, it must have been 1030. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was out till two in the morning with Carl Wilson. And when you're drinking with a pop critic, you're really drinking. Uh, If only we had the outtakes of that conversation for Slate Plus. That sounds like an epic bender. It was so bromantic, you can't even begin to believe it. It really was. I assume Celine Dion was playing the whole time. Yeah, exactly. It was bromantic with a sprinkling of the Frankfurt School. It was really fun. Nice. Julia, before we uh, move any further along, we have some business, right? Yeah. Well, so what we actually have for our Slate Plus segment today is sadly not the drunken outtakes of your, uh, no doubt, fascinating conversation with Carl. Instead, we are going to talk about what we are reading currently, our current reading list, current nightstand or night table Um, and how we read generally and how that's been changed or not by the advent of the internet. 
And I also wanted to put in a plug for the Slate event that my teen self would have been most excited about and that my current self remains extremely excited about and desirous of going to North Carolina for. Mom and Dad are Fighting, which is one of my absolute favorite podcasts in the Slate Pantheon. If you're not listening to it yet, you should. And it does not matter whether or not you have children. Dan and Allison are so smart and funny about raising kids. And even if you don't have kids and don't ever want to have kids, you surely were a kid at one point, unless you're an artificial intelligence machine starring in Ex Machina. Maybe, maybe that robot shouldn't. You know, I think even the robot in Ex Machina should listen to Mom and Dad are Fighting. In any event, it's a great show, and they are doing a live show in Durham, North Carolina on Sunday, June 7th at MotorCo. And the evening's special guest will be Mac McCann of the band Superchunk. So he will talk about indie rock parenting, his new solo album, Parenting Triumphs and Fails, and he will perform live. The notion of having anybody Superchunk on a parenting podcast is fantastic. So I hope everybody in any Carolina or adjacent states will drive epic distances to this event. Definitely turn out. Dan and Allison are terrifically fun entertainers. And Mac McCann, of course, is a legend. It should be a really terrific event. Again, that is June 7th at Motor Co. in Durham, North Carolina. Slate Plus members get 30% discounts on their tickets. And you can find info for how to buy them at slate.com slash mom and dad live. All right, Steve, let's commence. Let's. All right. Ex Machina is a low-key mod mood and thought stimulant from the writer-director Alex Garland, best known for writing screenplays for the film director Danny Boyle. This movie tells the story of Caleb, a very young programmer, who selected from among the tens of thousands of employees of his very Google-like company to visit the remote mountain home of his firm's founder, Nathan, played to great effect, I think, by Oscar Isaac. It turns out after signing ironclad disclosure forms, Caleb will be interacting with a beautiful robot named Ava to help determine whether or not she's achieved consciousness. Let's listen to a clip. Do you know what the Turing test is? Yeah, I know what the Turing test is. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does a pass tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. Dana, I want to start with you. I'm very interested to know whether you like the movie. Uh, We'll get to deeper conversations about consciousness and all the metaphysics of it and whether the film is sexist, on and on. But first, uh, did you like it as a movie? Uh, yeah, it's lots of fun. I had I had heard really good things about this movie, and I'm really glad we're doing a segment on it. The first time that somebody strongly encouraged me to see it was when I was taping a spoiler podcast on the, the new Avengers movie with Matt Singer, who writes for Screen Crush. And, uh, and I happened to mention that robots in movies are really boring. I just said, you know, every time we have, like, the bad guy robot, he looks exactly the same, and he looks like Iron Man, and yeah, but the way that we envision robots in movies is boring. And he said, well, you need to see Ex Machina, because that is a new way of envisioning a robot body on screen. And he was completely right. To me, that's really the most fun and interesting thing about this movie is the way the robot woman played by Alicia Vikander is just so um, how would you describe her? She's just she's, she's, she's got these great sort of slightly off ways of moving her head. There's something slightly mechanical about her but at the same time she seems very poignant and melancholy and her, the way her body is shown is just really really cool as well. She It's a wonderful piece of bodily acting. I mean it reminded me of Andy Serkis and the wonderful performances we've seen him in which are our motion capture and I read in one review that she studied ballet. She trained in ballet. And there is a certain kind of formal, like, Coppolina right. doll come to like life. Like isolation. She isolates her muscle movements in this kind of automat- automatized way. Yeah, it's very subtle and really creepy. And the sound design of the movie is terrific. There's also these little, just very minor whirring noises that accompany her eye blinks and head tilts that are really subtly done and really effective, I thought. I mean, the sound design across the movie more broadly is really smart, but the the noise of her mechanics is eerie and cool. So, Julia, I take it you like the film, admire the film. I thought the movie was great. I thought it was just really fun and like a very unusual cinematic object. 
And I found myself wondering about its provenance and how anybody managed to make a movie so interesting and beautiful and expensive looking. Like, it seems rare for a movie this expensive looking to be this good. I have some qualms about its ending. I I agree. I think the last 15 minutes are a little weak. The word that I kept using to my husband and discussing it afterwards was bloodless, which is not the right word because there's actually lots of blood at the end. But there is, I think, a peril in making a movie about robots and logic and analytical intelligence. This movie resists its urge to push our buttons in a gigantic rush of world-saving climactic activity. And I know we complain about movie climaxes a lot, but I felt that the climax of this film would have benefited from a little more like heat and sweat and bustle. It was a little clinical. Um, I don't want to get into too many details. This movie was so beautiful and glacial, I wondered if it needed a little more heat and heart, but I thought it was just gorgeous and fun. I really admire the film for withholding in that specific way. I thought it was it was true to its vision. And, you know, the director, Dana, the director's spoken to the budget in relation exactly to that, to his resistance to using any kind of splitsy special effects or inserting a car chase. He kept the budget to 16 million U.S. dollars, which is quite low for something that looks this beautiful. And and you think that it's an expensive movie until you really consider what isn't in it. I mean, they're really... It's a technical achievement to give her body its robotic form and her make her face, you know, to sort of place her face atop this uh, clearly unhuman form, which is creepy. But other than that, it's really not a special effects driven film. And, you know, the Turing test has entered the popular imagination with the Cumberbatch movie and, um, you know, to a degree, even the Age of Ultron, which is about artificial, you know, has an artificial intelligence MacGuffin in it. Of the treatments of it, this is by far and away the smartest. It seems to me that uh, Garland really understands the issues around the Turing test and whether or not a machine, both technical and philosophical issues of whether a machine will ever achieve anything resembling human consciousness. And what I like about the low-key ending is that really is is the drama of the film made extremely human is whether, I mean, the film really is set up as, I mean, really in two ways, it seems to me. One, as whether or not this machine has an interior life. And then secondly, I thought the performance of Oscar Isaac was at the center of the film or very close to the center of the film, almost as close as the relationship between Ava and Caleb. You know, he's really our stand-in for all of the pathologies of Silicon Valley, which can be overdrawn, and in this instance, wasn't. He's quietly weird, charismatic, off-kilter, brilliant. You know, he physicalizes this human being. He's always lifting weights and consuming something, either to make him healthy or to fuck him up recreationally. He's both very in control, but feels on the edge of a mild psychosis. That energy is really critical to the film because he's the person who's created this womanoid, you know, um, this sexy, alluring womanoid. Um, I'm really curious. I I got into a drunken, uh, but really wonderfully enlightening at the time conversation with Carl about the film's last night, possible sexism. And I'm curious whether that tripwired either of you guys. I didn't read it as sexist. I also would not describe the Oscar Isaac's character's portrayal of tech billionairedom as not overdrawn. I mean, it's pretty, he like settles into that role and wallows around in it and has just a great fucking time. And it is so enjoyable to watch him, but it's not subtle or restrained in its critique of tech billionairedom or technological hubris or uh, rich assholes. Like I, I would say as, as, on the, as written on the page, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think it's beautifully written on the page, but not underdrawn. As performed, he decided to cut against that, and his affect is quite low and, and, and throaty and menacing, and I thought that was a, a terrific choice. Well, and the thing that it does, which feels right of the moment, is it, you know, people talk about the programmers and bro culture in Silicon Valley and the notion that, you know, I think the first generation of tech gurus were nerds, nerds in the garage who have the kind of attendant social awkwardness that you associate with that. And this suggested a more socially fluent person. Like he's he's sharing beers. He's trying to make things real and get past the bull. You know, he's like disrupting their boss-mentee relationship and 
he he just felt very of the moment in in and I agree that the performance is much more subtle than the part could have been and Oscar Isaac is just so compelling I want I wanted him to play every role in this movie and maybe every role in every movie ever like he's just so well, electric Oscar, I mean Oscar Isaac is a, to me in my mind a huge movie star I'm amazed that he is not yet a complete household word because every role he's in is so different and every role is so good even when the movie is not that good a most violent year was a movie he recently did that really was quite disappointing as a movie overall but he had that you know movie star quality in a completely different role um, and so to see him play this kind of juicy thriller villain is, is fun but I think the script really does his character a disservice at the end I mean the central relationship in the film as much as it is between Caleb who we haven't mentioned yet the actor's name but he's play, played by Donald Gleason, who I th- think is great the son of, of, of Brendan Gleason. also the son of Brendan Gleason, but it's like he could not be a more opposite body type than Brendan Gleason, who is like broad in every respect and Donald Gleason is just like a vertical exclamation point of a human being. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Even though they're both redheaded Irishmen, it's true. Actually, it's the same physical relationship as Timothy Spall and his son Rafe Spall, right? It's like this big, burly, craggy-faced actor dad. And then the, he must have like a very delicate wife because then he <laughs> comes out with this reedy little beautiful son. But Donald Gleason actually played a replicant in something or sort of a robot figure in something we talked about on this show, Black Mirror, mm-hmm. right? In one of the episodes of the TV series Black Mirror, which is sort of a science fiction, Twilight Zone type world. He plays a guy who's brought back to life, remember? So he himself has had to sort of move his body in strange, uncanny, robotic ways. I was thinking of that when he was interacting with her. But I was just going to say that the relationship between Oscar Isaac as this programmer dude who basically invented the equivalent of Google or something and his programmer employee, I think is as much at the heart of the movie as the one between uh, Donald Gleason and the robot. Yeah, and it's really. But wait, 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 Dana. I don't think you completed your initial thought, which was how the. Without giving anything away, can you say how the ending of the movie did a disservice to the Oscar Isaac character? I mean, essentially just that Oscar Isaac's character, I can't remember his character's name now, he never got to have his moment. He never sort of got to have his moment of complexity. He just sort of became more and more villainous until he was the villain that was being, you know, chased around. Mm-hmm. And it sort of seemed as if all the possibility that we could have had to understand more what contradictions in his character brought him to that point in life. I don't mean necessarily backstories and flashbacks and things like that, but just a moment when he gets to display some part of himself besides I am the bad guy who's I, inventing you know, I, robots. I, I, I guess so, but... And sorry, Julia, I, I, I know you wanted to go, but um, just quickly, I mean, I do think that there... Maybe it's slightly didactic, and that's why it appealed to me, but it was, you know, I mean, the irony of these programmers is that they failed the Turing test. And the additional irony to that is that in their, you know, Asperger's-y genius, they're willing to impute consciousness to a machine because they themselves don't have a depth relationship to their own, right? I mean, I thought that that was an, I mean, that was pointed and slightly didactic in the film, but it was brought home, and, and he it, the film is built around him lacking that introspective, you know, extra gear by which you would then have a revelatory moment towards the end of the film, you know, and, and oh, which I don't you mean realize, that he would have an inner revelation, but I just mean that even in the external I world see. somehow, you know, that there would be okay. some sort of encounter that in which he had to face or we saw him meeting his limitations. Well, but I think to play the defense here for a minute, I think you could argue that he gets his moment of complexity by turning out to be right on some level. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that because there's lots of different ways that the end game in this secluded, high design, dwell magazine house could play out. I mean, the just aesthetics of this film are so pristine and luscious. They're really fun. You know, and I think waking up this morning, I do think this movie will stay with me because I think what's striking about it and what feels so unique about it is that the fundamental question it poses is intellectual. It doesn't deliver some emotional jolt of satisfaction or agony. The question it leaves you with is, has Ava passed the Turing test, right? In what happens in the climax of the film, is the behavior that of human intelligence or that of a of a machine. And or as Steve puts it, you know, can we really say that <laughs> that we as humans, how, how many of us can say that we have passed the Turing test, right? I mean, the Turing test becomes kind of an ethical Rubicon that everyone has to cross in this movie, whether they're human or robot. Right. Yeah. But I just, this movie felt more distinctive than anything I've seen at the movies in a long time and very, very satisfying. E- even if we have our quibbles about the kind of pacing and electricity at the end of it, it's incredibly satisfying. It's luscious to look at. It's really fun. At moments, it's deeply comic. I laughed harder at one scene that I won't spoil, but there's one just really juicy and hilarious scene that allows for some physical comedy from Oscar Isaac in the middle of the movie that cracked me up. Um, I'm so curious what that is. But yeah, there are some funny moments and there's some very eerie moments. I mean, this is not a movie I would I would advise seeing by yourself and then walking through a 
dark alleyway. It's it's spooky and uncanny, and it has some real moments of almost horror movie scare. It would definitely have that thing of The Matrix where you come out and you sort of think everybody's a robot. Like, like I went out for dinner afterwards, and I was like, oh, those people at the next table are totally robots. Well, that's a wonderful moment in the movie where Donald Gleason starts to wonder whether he's a robot, and I won't give away what he does, but there's a moment that he starts to kind of experiment with his own body to see if it's his. I try watching this movie in Canada where everyone is so fucking nice and polite all the time. You walk out of it absolutely convinced it's a robot nation of robots. Let me say quickly, just to be grindingly didactic. Your Canadian producer is going to shut the mic down any second. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I couldn't be happier in this country, let me sure, tell you. But, sure. um, uh, sincerely. But really quickly, what um, blows me away about this movie is that for 16 million bucks, right? Which is nothing. That's an introductory cough in a pitch meeting in Hollywood. You know, a movie this beautiful, this interesting, and this gripping can be made. And the director put it bluntly. He said, if we inject a car chase or something like that, you know, a big fight in a helicopter and then helicopter crashes and people jump out and carry on the fight on the ground and all that kind of stuff, it would interfere hugely tonally and actually thematically on every level with this film. So the budget and the contained quality were about having the freedom to do it properly, i.e. this movie was better because it was cheaper. Yeah, this is something that I really appreciated about this movie and that I hope has an influence on what movies get made in the future in this science fiction genre is that it's a chamber piece and there are not very many sci-fi chamber pieces anymore. It's sort of like sci-fi has to go along with exploding helicopters or no one will finance it. And I don't think that needs to be the case. It was a really nice chamber. I mean, <laughs> I agree. can we do like the next Culture Fest retreat at that Icelandic like posh that whatever that was super fun with oh the beaded God. skull the single beaded skull sitting on the coffee table. couple of jackson pollocks lying around really good sushi inexplicably on the glacial mountaintop <laughs> julia session one <laughs> uh, if you saw the movie you got that joke all right the movie's ex machina it's written and directed by alex garland three super enthusiastic thumbs up please do go see it we'd love to hear what you think about it uh, after you have at facebook.com slash culture all right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia. What, what do we have? Steve, maybe you should tell us about shaving in Canada, because I am about to tell our readers about <laughs> shaving in the United States, which regardless of what gender you are and which parts of you you shave, is a pain in the butt when you go to the drugstore and the where do they keep the blades and are they the same place as the razors and are they just behind the counter? Are they behind the glass case? And yeah, like it is somehow an endless pain in the ass to scrape hair off of parts of your body if you do it the old-fashioned way. It is not, however, if you do it through Harry's. Harry's delivers a superior shave. They cut out the middleman and offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore brands. And their starter kit is just $15, which includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. As an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with our code culture, which means that when you use the promo code culture, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just 10 bucks. Steve, I believe you have um, plumped up your beautiful visage with a Harry's shaving kit. Can you remind our listeners how you felt about it? I felt so good. I've gone through life this kind of weak kneed, self doubting, faux craggy, unshaven mess. It turned out it was all the plexiglass separating me from razors in U.S. drugstores. And as soon as that plexiglass, it would be hard to call it a ceiling because really it's, it's, it's vertical rather than horizontal, but <laughs> the, the plexiglass wall thing. <laughs> you know when a ceiling is standing vertically? It's like, it's like a perpendicular ceiling type facade thing. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, I do need an eye-opener today, my God. Um, uh, When there's that that vertical ceiling thing between you and the thing you want, and someone smashes it and hands you the thing for a lot less money. Anyway, now I just shave with, like, a spring in my step, and I walk through life tall and proud. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the promo code CULTURE with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter coupon code CULTURE at checkout for $5 off the starter set. Start shaving smarter today. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. May 20th is the last episode of The Late Show, The Late Night Juggernaut, of course, 
helmed by David Letterman since 1993. That makes for 33 years behind the desk and the microphone, which makes for slightly more than Letterman's own idol, Johnny Carson. In Slate Magazine, Slate's feature editor, Jessica Winter, wrote a wonderful piece called David Letterman Raised Me. Before I introduce Jessica, let me read a little bit from this piece. You figure out how to program the silver quasar VCR your household acquires in 1985 when you are eight years old. And for the next several years, you will wake up an hour early each morning to watch Late Night with David Letterman before school. And for a short while in the early 90s, when A&E starts showing reruns of Late Night from Before Your Time, you will spend two hours with Letterman every day. One of those hours with a young and relatively mellow Letterman, a Letterman who is not yet encumbered by mannerisms and who occasionally wore a sweater vest. The piece goes on. Jessica, welcome to the show. You've never been on when I've been hosting. This is a great uh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you were a Letterman obsessive. I don't know you well at all, um, only glancingly, but I wouldn't have uh, pegged you as a Letterman obsessive, but um, that was a superficial judgment, it turns out. Tell me what this uh, what this guy meant to you. Well, I think a lot of it was just my place in my family. Um, my three siblings are much older than I am, and I think I always wanted their limited attention and their approval, and I wanted to sort of feel part of my family in a way that I kind of wasn't just because there were so many years between us. And uh, my sister worked as a waitress to get herself through school. And she used to watch David Letterman when she came home at night. And I must have heard her talking about how much she loved him or something. So I decided that I would become a David Letterman fan too. So it was a very kind of childlike thing to do, to just decide to solve a problem by liking something or showing Mm -hmm. enthusiasm for something. But that's how it started. But I don't think that was why I stuck with it all those very many years. And I tried to explain it in the piece. But what I think attracted me to him was that his show felt like this private, secret world that you could just escape into either late at night or early in the morning, as I did. Um, I think little kids think that all the fun happens after they go to bed, and that's why they, mm-hmm. they fight it so hard. You know, like, the time after you go to bed is where people are, you know, running around eating ice cream and watching cartoons and going nuts, and he kind of confirmed that for me, that, you know, at <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning, there were guys throwing watermelons off of buildings and playing pranks and getting up to all kinds of mischief and and I, I, I liked that. Top 10 special, top 10 list. Number 10, things that sound creepy when said by John Malkovich. I put my jammies on all by myself, mommy. Number eight, changes I will make in the White House, George W. Bush. Make sure the White House Library has lots of books with big print and pictures. <laughs> Number seven, Betty White, tips for living a long and happy life. The best way to earn a quick buck is a slip-and-fall lawsuit. It seems also from your piece you wonderfully convey how Letterman was the perfect adult to bring you news not only of the adult world but of and, and after-hours world, but of New York in some way. Talk a little bit about how he represented a kind of urbanity or um, adultness or citified uh, sophistication to you. Yeah, David Letterman was sort of the the quintessential Midwesterner. He always made a lot of his Indiana roots and his Ball State uh, credentials, and he sort of presented himself as the the straight man ambling through New York's weird and wonderful streets, introducing the audience to all these strange characters. One of my favorite remote segments that he ever did uh, was he, he went to the Just Bulbs store. And that's told me a lot about <laughs> New York City, that there was a store called Just Bulbs where you could just buy bulbs. And he kind of mercilessly pelted the poor shopkeeper, you know, with questions about, well, what else do you sell here? You know, well, other than bulbs, what do you sell? Uh, and then he ended up at Just Shades and you know he he um that's hilarious I buy my shades at Just Shades <laughs> <laughs> I know it's still around and whenever whenever I'm walking in that neighborhood I, I have very fond memories of Just Shades <laughs> you know he showed that you could come from anywhere and land in New York City and and make your way and that making your way in New York City might actually be more fun and more interesting if you weren't from New York, if New York did seem like this strange and wonderful and odd place to you all the time. And he sort of invited the viewer into that. Why do you think it was Letterman who offered entree to so many people? I mean, he spoke to you for specific family reasons, but what is it that he offered in the landscape that felt distinct from late night hosts 
before him and other kind of cultural MC figures. Well, Carson was obviously his model, his role model. And Carson fell in love with David Letterman and brought him to America's attention. He could have fallen in love with anybody, and he could have fallen in love with someone who wasn't quite as odd and didn't have (laughs) such strange fixations and interests. I'm curious, Dana and Steve, what your guys' relationships were to Letterman or are. Well, I'm a little bit older than Jessica, but I was in high school, very early high school, when his show started. And uh, either we didn't have a VCR or I didn't know how to program it because it never occurred to me to record Letterman. It was just sort of like a treat once in a while to stay up that late and watch him and then be really tired the next day. But being a little bit older than eight when his, his show came on the air, I thought he was really sexy. I had a huge crush on him in the early 80s. You know, he was just this this weird, like you say, displaced Midwesterner with the gap in his teeth and the wavy brown hair. And he was weird and sardonic, like the guys I liked in school. You know, somebody who would sort of dryly mutter something out of the corner of his mouth and be hilarious. And so I have very, very fond memories of that incarnation, that early incarnation of the show. Then there was a long gap of not watching him at all after he changed networks and I was in college. And then when I went back, I guess maybe it was around the time of his heart surgery, but he aged so quickly that one of the main things I always think of now when I see David Letterman is like, he got old so fast <laughs> because he was one of those those people. Richard Dreyfus is another one in a way who had who got old like in one fell swoop. You know, he had his young look. Richard Dreyfus did, right? Like his chunky jaws guy. And then he became this like trim, white haired Mr. Holland's Opus guy. And it was two different Richard Dreyfuses. And that's a little bit how I feel about Letterman. As for as for how his show has changed in tenor over the years, I don't think I've watched enough to speak to that. But he himself seems to have kind of, you know, withdrawn into his shell in a way. And those parts of him that were odd and, and a little bit sour or dour or something seem to have eclipsed other parts of his personality, but not necessarily in a way that makes him a worse host or a worse interviewer, just in a way that makes him more idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I've lost t- touch with Letterman completely over the last few years, but he meant the world to me, Jessica, when I was younger also, and for many of the same reasons. I grew up in New York City, but the city in some ways was a complete mystery to me. It was this gigantic thing outside my front door that I couldn't and didn't understand at least as a young person. And here was this goofy, gangly, awkward, wry, knowing, wise, truly irreverent, like like deeply irreverent figure on TV who who made sense of it in a, in a peculiar way. I think Letterman is really, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just a seat of the pants theory uh, coming to you live from Toronto, but it seems to me in, in the history of comedy on TV, Letterman's the bridge figure, the really, really critical bridge figure for the 80s, because you'd had Monty Python on American TV in the late 70s and SCTV originating originally from up here on TV in the late 70s, early 80s, and you had early SNL in the, you know, late 70s and on and on and on. And then SNL just went, was rotting on the vine for most of the 1980s. It was a terrible show. And um, television comedy became extremely predictable and anodyne and laugh tracky in the 80s. And um, Letterman kept it alive. Letterman kept that skewed, unpredictable, slightly counterculture. I mean, he wasn't really a counterculture figure, but like a deeper reverence and a sense that television was intrinsically preposterous um, and, <laughs> and silly, you know, kind of exploding the medium from within, which is what the original SNL made, the original SNL such a revelation. And, and, and Letterman bridged it. He was the only thing that I can think of in that period that kept it alive until you got The Simpsons. Now we're in the midst of a comedy boom that uh, Letterman deserves a huge, huge amount of credit for. Yeah, you're right. I mean, his talk show was a talk show and behaved as one, but it was also simultaneously a parody of a talk show. And that I think that's one of its many fascinations. I mean, you say that he's deeply irreverent, Stephen. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that word gets tossed around a lot, like you know, any comedy that seems even slightly edgy. We say, oh, it's so irreverent. But he was deeply, profoundly irreverent and didn't really know another way to be. And often, like, a little difficult to watch. Like, his show mm-hmm. could be profoundly uncomfortable all the mm-hmm. way across the generations of a show, whether you're watching a clip from 1982 or you're watching him interview someone that he has clearly no interest in, you know, last month. Like, it it can just be 
a little awkward to watch. You kind of want to turn it off sometimes. That mm-hmm. has always been the case. And it's not something that we necessarily associate with a mammothly successful broadcaster. But there you go. Yeah, no, I mean, it, that, that irreverence really extends back to himself. It's not just the medium. I mean, there is a I've wasted my life vibe to David Letterman that <laughs> makes makes him still right along the cutting edge. I, I've done too much talking. Julia, what do you think? What, what did Letterman mean to you? Letterman meant almost nothing to me. <laughs> That's why I haven't said anything. <laughs> so, that is so predictable. <laughs> but not not be, not for lack of admiration to him. I, it, it's more, I think, a generational thing. And I think the way we've all listed our own ages and life stories as we've talked about our relationships with these hosts, I do think the way that these nighttime talk show hosts come into your house and your life and are sort of these incidental companions as you unwind from whatever you were doing and drift off to dreamland, they play a particular role in your home and in your head that is unusual and distinct and and colors your relationship with them. So I would say growing up in the 90s and sort of affiliating like with Team Indie and Team Alterna and Team Sassy Magazine or whatever, I understood on some tribal level that Letterman was cool and Leno wasn't. And Um, You know, I just never had a regular watching relationship with it. And I do, I think I admired the prickliness more than I was like, let me turn on that prickly guy. And I actually feel that way a little bit about, you know, Jon Stewart and Colbert. Like, I think between the two, Colbert is just the mammoth, insane talent, like the zany comet blaze. Like, I can't wait to see what he does next. In terms of deciding which of their two TiVo shows to watch when when Colbert and Stewart were stacked up back to back for all those years, like Stewart was your comfy, your comfy mugging uncle, you know, who was who had that crack team of video analysts and he would be stick it to some dumbass and and kind of shrug and mug. And you'd be like, you tell him, John Stewart. And then, you know, th- th- to go into Colbert's like zany head twisting mess of, of personalities and, and much more kind of lacerating barbed humor felt more admirable and less comfortable. And I didn't always sign up for that trip. So I'm really excited to see what Colbert does in Letterman's shoes. I know Letterman in that interview said that he, you know, I never picked Colbert and nobody asked me <laughs> in a, classically uncomfortable, barbed, not reverent at all. <laughs> not even a pro forma gush about, about Colbert. Like, of course, what a talented man, blah, blah, you know, just like, I'm going to say something awkward to this interview <laughs> about this guy who's clearly a, a talented next um, sitter in this, in this chair. But I do think that that kind of ambition and intellect and comfortability with aggression and discomfort feels feels like a fit, even though Colbert is such a kind of razzmatazz show tunes guy in a way that Letterman is not. I don't know what you guys think about him stepping into the chair. Maybe there needs, maybe the whole idea of succession and late night talk shows is dumb anyway, and there needs to be no intellectual lineage there. But um, for some reason, there feels like there's a fit to me. Uh, It feels like a perfect fit for me. David Letterman and Stephen Colbert being equally revolutionary figures in comedy. I think they've had an equally uh, enormous impact on the comedy landscape in terms of what we think of as being funny in terms of how they kind of overturned the assumptions that we make about what a talk show is. I I just think, you know, in in terms of choosing a successor for David Letterman, if we really are going to think about it in in those kind of weird royal terms, um, Stephen Colbert, to me, just that there would be nobody else I would want in that role. It is weird to think, given that Stephen Colbert has already done something so revolutionary in his late night show and adopting this whole other persona and keeping it up for an insane yeah. amount of time. Like, what's his next act? Like, what's he going to yeah. do next? How how will he kind of push it again? I mean, I don't know. I'm excited to see. When he posted that picture, when Colbert posted that picture of himself on social media with a big, full gray beard, I was thinking, like, things are going to get weird. You know, I would love <laughs> it if he hosted with that beard. I think it's just an interim beard, but I wish it would stay. <laughs> All right. Well, the piece is David Letterman raised me. His subversive comedy transformed the entertainment landscape and made me who I am today. It's by Jessica Winter, Slate Features Editor. Jessica, such a pleasure to have you on the show. What a true delight. Thank you so much, you guys. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got? This episode of the Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by the Netflix original documentary series Chef's Table, which offers viewers the opportunity to go inside the lives and kitchens of six of the world's most renowned international culinary talents. The series is directed by David Gelb, the creator of Jiro Dreams of Sushi. 
What makes a chef? Is it signature dishes and kitchen experience, culinary training, and personal heritage, or is it something else? Each of the six episodes features an acclaimed chef from a different region of the world. Australia, Argentina, Los Angeles. There's one with Magnus Nielsen of Sweden, another with Dan Barber, who operates here in New York City. And all the episodes are streaming now. So again, that's Chef's Table on Netflix. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. Lip Sync Battle has been spun off from a sketch on the Jimmy Fallon show and has become its own big hit on Spike TV. It started out as a silly bit of late-night fun. It now features big stars and big tricked-out stage show-type numbers with LL Cool J hosting. It, i.e., went from everything I don't care about to everything I hate. Julia Turner, thank you so much for making me talk about this with a hangover. Why do you care about this? That's my job. I'm not sure I care (laughs) about it, but I think it's interesting for a couple reasons. I mean, the first is we are looking at this hugely changing terrain in late night, right? And Jimmy Fallon, I think, seems to be the most successful of the new hosts in a long time. His show's doing well. It seems to have, more importantly than any rating success, and they're always debating back and forth about this or that, that numbers, but it seems to have captured some kind of cultural imagination, and it feels current in a way that a lot of the other late night shows don't. And one way that he's done that is by having these segments that are intended to go viral online. And that's now become a kind of tried and true mode. You've seen John Oliver adopting that. People are designing these shows to become digestible bits on the web. But then Jimmy Fallon or some of his producers had the idea of taking one of their most popular digestible bits and one of the ones that goes viral most frequently, where they get celebrities in, get them to lip sync to popular songs not by themselves, and generally make a fool of themselves in a histrionic and goofy sort of we're all playing charades in my living room way and turn it into a show. And I think NBC passed on the show and it somehow ended up on Spike TV. And now it is a hit entirely out of proportion with Spike's general audience size and general audience demographic. So I think the history of the show is kind of interesting. But what most interests me about it is what this particular mode is for celebrities, this kind of dignity shredding, earning points by being cool and casual mode of celebrity feels slightly distinct from what we have asked of celebrities in the past, right? We used to ask for them to be glacial idols up on a pedestal. Then we asked for them to have torrid affairs that we could read about, a la, you know, Liz and Dick. Then we asked them to be just like us and, like, go to Starbucks and have messy hair and, like, wear juicy sweatpants and go to yoga class. (laughs) Um, But now we seem to want them to do what? What is this thing that Jimmy Fallon gets celebrities to do and why does it appeal to us and and how do we think it carries forward into the show? That's why I'm interested. Hmm, Now I'm interested. Uh, But Dana, (laughs) I want to... I want I want you to answer that question while I formulate. Well, let me put it this way. I, I watched a few episodes of this show before going and reading what everyone was saying about it. And I was sort of struck by the disparity between my experience of the show and then a lot of really negative buzz about, like, I'm so sick of these celebrities begging for attention and pleading for love. And maybe it's just that I watched the wrong segments that were actually entertaining and funny, but I didn't come away from it feeling like these people are horrible, vain, empty. I mean, maybe they are, but the show sort of felt to me like... Sort of like LL Cool J was hosting a bar mitzvah or something, <laughs> you know? I mean, LL Cool J is just such a sweet, huggable host, he, and he's really sort of a good reactor to things in the moment. He genuinely seems to enjoy the performances. The one in particular I'm thinking of, and Steve, you had to have liked this one, because I know you love him, was Stephen Merchant, who just killed it in his appearance oh, on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> Your pride is on the line. Yeah. All right? A little freaky, a little kinky. Yeah. Which first song? Well, as Marlon's already hinted, when people look at me, they think of sex symbol. Yes. And they think of my deep, rich uh, olive skin. Yes. So what better choice than Enrique Iglesias' hero? (laughs) Would you dance if I asked you to dance? And, and I just loved seeing LL Cool J and Malin Ackerman, who was competing against Stephen Merchant, in the background just cracking up. So I guess that's exactly what the show was supposed to give me, a sense of being, you know, hanging out with celebrities. And I guess I'm ashamed because I enjoyed it. Okay, but, 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 <laughs> Don't but be wait. ashamed. If you enjoyed it, own that. <laughs> but I'm sure that there are many celebrities that I would not want to see in this mode. And in fact, Anne Hathaway, who I also, I watched her competition with Emily Blunt, was one of the ones who was always, to me, I'm one of those people who does find her a little bit of like an A-plus drama student. And that really came out in her performance, whereas Emily Mm -hmm. Blunt was, you know, just casual and sexy and cool. 
Right. Okay. But I mean, I, I will say I liked it when it was a segment on Fallon that I could click on, you know, once or twice. Uh, that was great. And I kind of hate it now that it's a thing. It just, it's something about inflating it with uh, money and glitz has made it just so, you know, it just, it was, a, it's just a scale thing. If it's, you know, a celebrity shows up and does this completely unexpected, charming turn with Jimmy Fallon, who's terrific at it. I mean, that was the other reason that it happened in the first place. It, it affirmed Fallon's great quality as a host, which is he is a guy who just shows up and hits his mark, you know, every time. Like if he pulls out an acoustic guitar and does a Neil Young impression, it's fantastic. If he decides to do something like celebrity lip sync or lip sync, it turns out he's fantastic at that. He's just kind of a, he's got a little bit of like this kind of soft shoe polymorphism to him, which is terrific. It's his great quality. And as a tiny little piece of a charming enough late night show, I thought it was kind of great, but now it's just a fucking thing. I'm so sick of things. It's so fucking, it's so. <laughs> I'm so sick of walls and things. <laughs> Not to mention stuff. <laughs> stuff is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> it's just too fun. Steve, I will concede that the show is too long. I think that there should be two matchups per show. It's a half an hour long show, and it basically consists of the first half, they each do one song. The second half is a little bit more tricked out. There's usually background dancers and maybe more costuming, and they do sort of a bigger number. And I would be happy to get rid of that bigger number and, ha- and just have two different pairings per show. Dana, if you think you can appease my inner Adorno by making this show slightly smaller, you vastly <laughs> underestimated what a shithead I am. I mean, it's not that. It's it's something to do with both inflation and deflating or or inflating through deflating. That's what's galling about it. That's exactly, yes, exactly what's galling about it. I mean, I was just curious. I was curious to do this. Honestly, the reason I was agitating for us to do it is because I had all those questions about celebrity. And also, I always like when those clips go around. And I sort of wondered what it was like as a show. It seemed like it would be kind of fun to snack through a few episodes and see what's what. And I sure did. After I got home from X Machina last night, I like zipped with a heavy hand on the TiVo through a few of the performances. We should also mention Chrissy Teigen, who has like a really classic, like new age Vanna TV. TNA, uh, like Ditz dancing on the sidelines. She has role. a very bizarre role. She sort of stands behind a counter, like as if she's a bartender. Or like a DJ. Is it supposed to be like the DJ booth? And then basically. Isn't there a bookshelf? Isn't there a bookshelf? There might be her? a bookshelf behind her. Anyway, she finds a way to bear her midriff in every outfit. She's very game. And then, like, pretty much whenever somebody's kind of boring in their performance, the camera just like wanders over and checks out her, like, shaking her rack around <laughs> a little bit, which, you know, it's not not entertaining. Um, Anyway, so they have a funny dynamic to Chrissy and LL. And the performers, you can just immediately tell whether the performers are worth watching. Like, to me, this is a classic. This is a show that's actually designed to have this pre-screening part where you learn the next morning whether it's good enough to go viral. Because watching the episodes where the performers just aren't very good at it and weirdly lip syncing actually is a thing that you can either be good at or not be good at is really painful. So um, Malin Ackerman... And Stephen Merchant were both incredibly game, incredibly into it, exchanging dumb barbs, seeming to be deeply actually nervous, which to me is the thing that's most fun about the show, is like there is something outside the comfort zone of these celebrities who whose job it is to swan about for us all the time. But it's such an unusual, extroverted thing to do that it seems to make them genuinely anxious in a way that's sort of charming and does feel like a new emotional mode to find a celebrity in. But when they're not very good, it's just totally dudsy. I, I feel mm-hmm. no desire to return to it again, really. But I will say, I don't feel like Stephen Merchant is too much in my face in life and that he's constantly begging for my attention. I wish he was in more movies and more TV shows because he's awesome. Can we talk for a second about lip syncing and what is compelling about it as an act, like on or off this show, whether it's something you've ever done? I mean, it's a little bit like karaoke. I was thinking about our karaoke segment because I think that these performances work similar nerves as the ones we discussed and dissected on that segment of our show but like why not just have it be the jimmy fallon karaoke show like what's fun about lip i mean lip syncing seems harder to me than karaoke i would be much more embarrassed to lip sync in front of you guys than i was to belt out karaoke as we did the other week <laughs> noted <laughs> <laughs> i mean lip syncing takes some real knowledge of that particular recording of that song and just a lot of kind of technical ability mimicry and it, it requires you to put a lot of performative energy into something while producing no sound. So it's just, it's an odd activity. Well, you know, it's interesting also is that, you know, 
what it takes to be a movie star and what it takes to be, say, a theater actor are are related, and sometimes a person is both, but they're also at another level, very, very distinct. And some people who are more stars than they are actors have just been virtuosos of being their whole life. And if you've ever been around one, which I've been only very few times uh, in a small setting, it's amazing to see it close up. It really, I really do think that there's an intrinsic star quality to people who become stars and, and an amazing intrinsic star quality to people who sustain it. And so when you see Emma Stone, little Emma Stone come on to do a blues traveler song, you often see that star quality subsumed to a character in the context of a film. And I think it's interesting to see that star quality that's probably been with this person since they were a little kid kind of leap out in a way. In a, in a way, it's probably the first thing they did that made people think they ought to be in movies, this kind of behavior. And you're like, yeah, this was the kid who everyone's eyes immediately went to on the playground because she did shit like this when she was six years old. And in that way, that's where the inflationary part of it comes from. I think the kind of deflationary aspect of I'm going to do something goofy on TV actually has no real self-deprecation to it. Steve, can I just say that I wrote down the phrase virtuosos of being to describe movie stars during that during that last rant. Virtuosos of being is great. And that is so perfect for how, even Oscar Isaac, who we were talking about earlier, yeah. how, how so many stars. Oh, operate. my God. Can we get him on Celebrity Lip Sync? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. There is something like I, we'll never need to go back and watch this show because it's just not worth watching the bad ones. But I could see leaving it on the TiVo and scanning through it like when there's a somebody you are interested in. Right. Yeah. When there's someone you're interested Interested in, or, or at least trusting that the viral winds of the internet will like blow the good performances to us in the future, because there is something something revealing about the nerves, and there is something that feels like you're understanding a different dimension of these stars from seeing them do these kind of goofy, off-the-cuff performances. Like I, I credit Jimmy Fallon for pushing celebrity dumb in this direction. I think the world is very modestly richer for it. All right, I think the show is called Lip Sync Battle, and I think it's on Spike. And I don't really care whether you watch it or not. And if you do, I don't care what you think about it. So don't come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest to tell me. <laughs> All right, moving on. All right, well, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other other sponsor. Julia Turner, what do we have? Our sponsor this week, Steve, is NatureBox. NatureBox is the company that sends delicious, healthy snacks to you in the mail. I love NatureBox because I am usually sitting at my desk having a hundred things to do and slowly getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and thinking I should really walk to the bodega and get myself some Fig Newtons and maybe a green tea. And then I'm then it's half an hour later and then I have that meeting and then it's an hour after that and then I have that other meeting and then I'm just like starving and pissed off and I can't make any decisions because I'm have such low blood sugar. And a solution to this dilemma for me is NatureBox. Luckily, I get NatureBox in the mail because I get to test them all out so I can tell our listeners about them. So just yesterday, I was having this dilemma and I ate some delicious sriracha covered cashews, which were spicy and sweet. And they had those healthy omega-3 cashew fats in them. And I felt virtuous and sated. And then I, you know, just sent 45 really badass emails right after that. So... So right now, if you go to naturebox.com slash culture, you can get a free trial. And the next time you're hungry, you can grab jalapeno white cheddar popcorn, pistachio power clusters, and Big Island pineapple, or personalize your favorites and get smart about snacking. Free snacks delivered to your door. What are you waiting for? Go to naturebox.com slash culture to start your free trial today. All right, Steve, time to endorse. Before we do that, though, Julia, I have to say anything that makes you more of a badass has got to be reclassified as a class three narcotic and heavily regulated. <laughs> that shit cannot be on the free market. I think I may have been the recipient of one of those badass emails. <laughs> Watch out, people. They're coming. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Now is the moment in our show where we endorse uh, Dana. What do you got? All right. Well, I'm going to do maybe a little bit more of a cocktail chatter than an endorsement this week because the thing that I'm endorsing, it's it's cultural. I guess it's cultural. It has to do with the means of consumption of culture. Um, people who follow me on Twitter may know about this, but I've been having this oh, no. battle I know where with this Time is going. Cable. Julia knows. <laughs> she knows. But you don't know the last minute twist. So, yeah. So Time Warner Cable, which is the only cable service provider available in my neighborhood, as essentially is, has become like a satanic force in my in my life where for the last, I mean, everybody who uses this company has had this experience at one point. But I would say in the last week, someone or other in my household has spent practically an hour every day on the phone with Time Warner, if not more, trying to get them to come and give us any service that works so that we can do our jobs from our house. And at some point during this long battle with this company, 
I remembered Kim Masters, the host of The Business, the podcast about show business, doing some sort of presentation about, you know, bundling cable and how there's new new ways to get cable besides from a single service provider and saying that she had lowered her cable rates by calling her company and asking. And so when I had this sort of I was armed fully with just all this rage toward this company and just proof on paper that, you know, we had had less than an hour of service probably in the last week. And uh, and so I just got in touch with somebody by chat and said, with as little temper as I could muster, I said to this this chat rep, so I noticed that the service that your company provides is vastly out of proportion with the amount of money you charge for it. And I'm wondering if we could pay less money. And they reduced my rates by about $30 a month or something, like a significant savings of money. So I'm just making a PSA for our listeners who do have cable of any kind and telling them that you can call up your cable service company and get lower rates. It doesn't mean that your service is going to be any good. It will probably continue to stink. But at the very least, you can pay fewer wheelbarrows full of money per month. I like Dana, Ace Negotiator. Negotiation tips from Dana. That's awesome. Um, I feel like the one trick I've heard with that, and I haven't tried it, so I can't vouch for it, is um, but I, have, I feel like I've experienced this, is that if you ever call and threaten to quit your service, they will, like, they will, like, buy you a pony, basically, because the <laughs> the losing a subscriber is, like, the, the great black mark for any of the reps on those lines. Oh, and yeah, so, they're desperate. I mean, they really are desperate to keep people at this point. And at one point during the weekend when I was so furious at them, I got on Twitter and started just making fun of Time Warner Cable, not with any thought that I would get a response or a reply, but essentially just to sort of blow off steam and mock this company that I was very mad at. And what do you know? They suddenly started calling my house and sending people to the door to fix the cable and, like, aren't we fancy. Well, great. So then we got the cable box to end all cable boxes. The guy was like holding it up like the Holy Grail. He installs it carefully. He checks all our wires. Everything's fabulous. He leaves. We've got incredibly fast internet. And the next day, the whole neighborhood goes down, totally unrelated to what this guy did. So it's like Pyrrhic victory, you know, but at least pay less for this crap. Uh, All right, Julia, what do you got? So this weekend, the finale of Mad Men will air. I've been on Mad Men TV club duty the last seven weeks, six weeks, and uh, we're coming down the home stretch. And going to say goodbye to this show. I imagine we'll talk about it next week. But I wanted to endorse this week, before we get there, a really hilarious piece on ClickHole, which is simply called An Oral History of Mad Men. And what it is making fun of here is something that I've actually mocked recently on the show, which is the convention of oral histories of every cultural product ever that you ever thought anyone might ever be interested in. Sometimes these are done in incredibly revealing and excellent ways where the interviewing that goes into creating an oral history does offer a compelling historical portrait of a particularly interesting object, but sometimes it's just like, we got four people on the phone and we don't even care what the history was and there's their voices and there's another voice, blah. (laughs) And ClickHole just mocks all of these conventions so hilariously. I won't spoil all the jokes here, but one of them is that John Hamm speaks basically like Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy and only says, <laughs> I am Ham throughout most of the transcript. <laughs> so here's his first entry. Yes, I am Ham. I read the script of Mad Men. I knew that I wanted to be the main star, the secret man who drinks at work. I loved him. I called Matthew Weiner and I told him, I love this script. I love the main star. Ham must be Draper. It has to be Ham. <laughs> Matthew Weiner. Definitely my favorite part about Don Draper is that he drinks at work. It's just bananas. I mean, that's not even the funniest part. That's just the first part that happened to come up on my phone. Um, But I love this for making fun of Mad Men and the internet at the same time. I Mm. highly commend it to our readers. It's so true that oral history used to, it used to mean something, people. In the days (laughs) of the Edie Sedgwick book, an oral history used to mean something. And it really is now just sort of like a bunch of jokers got together and said some stuff and we wrote it down. It's a very degraded form. Mm. I love it. All right. Well, uh, uh, the the sort of uh, premise behind my endorsement this week is that I am not a grown up, and it's highly unlikely I'll ever really be one. But I did cross a little milestone uh, along the way to grown uphood in Toronto, and hence my endorsement, which is uh, I've been hanging out with a, a couple of very cool Toronto restaurateurs, and um, they took me to a clothing store called Sydney's. And uh, they were just doing an errand there, and I went in with them. And I, I think you know my relationship to clothing stores, right? I walk in, and, and all of a sudden, like, my fight-or-flight responses start to kick in at a fairly low level, you know, a little bit of an elevated heartbeat, and this, like, spritzy little sweat gathers on the bridge of my nose. And uh, I just feel I feel awful. I feel conspicuous and fucking moronic, and I just want to get out as quickly as I can. And this is the first clothing store I've ever walked into where I didn't feel that way. I walked in, and I just... It was just beautifully designed, beautifully tailored, 
beautifully created men's clothes. They aren't cheap. I will say there were a wide variety of Torontonians in there. I think it's a kind of a small institution. It's where you go and you want to splurge on an item or in my case, on a suit. I ended up walking into this place and buying a fucking suit for like basically the first time in my life. I I've own never a real seen suit you in now. a suit. I've never, never seen you in a suit. And now I own one. And and also I want to say I've never ever taken a freebie in exchange for anything and never have. I know this sounds maybe a little suspicious that I just dropped a you know huge wad of cash in the store and whatever and I'm endorsing it the next day. It's nothing to do with that at all. He has no idea I'm saying this. It's just a great place. Sydney's. It's a, it's on a, a Queen Street West in Toronto. So check it out. Steve, will you wear the suit to our next live show? Yes. Okay, now we have to plan one. That's so exciting. <laughs> Sorry, I and just broke Anne's ear. <laughs> I broke Anne's ear with my squeal of suit glee. <sighs> All right. Anyway, uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. I did that out of order. I'm hungover. Thanks, Julia. I'm, I can be thanked second. It's fine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, credits. Do you want me and Dana to freestyle it since you're hungover? Yes, please take it away. Let's see if we can do it. No notes. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. I think you need another couple of cashews, Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest, but there's something else first. No, no. (laughs) It goes, uh, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our uh, producer is Ann Happerman. Our intern is Lindsay Uh, Albrecht. The managing uh, producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. you fucked up. Stop (laughs) talking. You fucked up. What I missed? you can email us at culturefestatslate.com or drop us a note. Uh, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our producer is Ann Hefferman. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer and lord over us all is Andy, Andy Bowers. Bowers. Woo! He also now directs the Panoply Network. You can check out their full roster of amazing shows at itunes.com slash panoply. And for some reason, we always say this last, but it makes no sense. Our Twitter feed is <laughs> at Slate Cult Fest, weirdly appended at the end. Uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, my God. She did it without notes. Mm-hmm.